0: Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 18 and the last time we saw our responsibilities as believers to others. And today we're going to look at our responsibilities towards our brothers. That's my attempt at being witty. But basically, the first, you just got that. (laughs) The first part of the chapter was really to the, you know, the little ones, the the ones that are unsaved, the lost sheep. And today now we're going to talk about how believers, uh, brothers and sisters, we we react and act towards each other and really our responsibilities towards each other. We're going to talk today about disharmony in the body of Christ, Um, confrontation, rebuke, repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation, and trust is very... Um, Not easy, some of this stuff, but God doesn't call us to do the easy things. He calls us to do the right things. So we're going to jump in and start with Matthew 18, verse 15. It says, moreover, if your brother sins against you, Jesus is speaking, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. He's referring back to the Old Testament with that phrase. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Now, confrontation, you know, just being a Christian and being a pastor, I see that's one of the hardest things for believers to deal with, going to someone and saying, you, you hurt me, you sinned against me, you know, I'd like to talk about it. Your adrenaline starts to kick in, your heart starts to flutter, your, your hands start to sweat, and, and a lot of people just won't do it. And they find it just so much easier to tell five of their friends about the situation. And maybe five more friends, and maybe their friends tell some other friends. And before you know it, the whole church knows about the situation, except the poor guy or girl who was the offender who might have had an opportunity to make it right and didn't get the chance. So gossip starts to take over in the church over this little nothing, this little nothing. And we see the Bible says that sin spreads like leaven through the church, and then now you have factions. In the church, and it, now this, it's 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 a it's a tough time for the leaders to have to deal with. But this is commanded; this isn't suggested. You know, some will come up to me and, and just ignore the first two steps, and I uh, I remand them down to the to the appellate court. That's jurisprudence talk. You know, don't come to me yet. You got to go down to the work your way through the through the steps before it gets to me. Um, and, and I encourage them though. Problems with not following this is number one. It's disobedience to God's word. Uh, which is the primary importance there. Two, we could be hurting the reputation of a brother or sister without giving them the opportunity to make it right. And three, we may be right, we may be the offended one, we may be the victim, but if we handle it wrong and it looks like we're the tail bearer, then what's gonna happen is when it goes down, that person's gonna get off scot-free and we're gonna get a reputation as a gossip. That's not fair either to us. So these are some really good reasons why you know, Jesus knows what he's doing. He made us, and he gave us the instruction manual to us, which is the Bible. And everything in here, if we follow it the way he says, things will work out the way they should. Verse 15, the first step, alone. <laughs> stress that word. Um, again, some say I'm not confrontational. Uh, but the benefits are that you may gain a brother or a sister. You may, through this tough time and through this facing each other and and saying the hard things, you may uh, actually build a stronger relationship with that person through this confrontation. So to gain a brother or sister, Jesus says, that is awesome. Um, It says, tell him his fault. Now, I'm going to go through the semantic range in the Greek. So tell him his fault. If we look at the Greek language and we go through the, the possibilities of the semantic range, other words used, synonyms, could be to rebuke or admonish. So it's not always pretty. You know, walking the Christian walk is, is not always easy, but it's very rewarding and it builds character. Uh, some say to me, you seem to be okay with this. You know, you say some bold things from the pulpit. I have to tell you the truth. When I have to talk to someone, I feel the same way. You know, I, I feel uncomfortable. I don't like doing it. I do it because I'm commanded to do it, but I don't enjoy doing it. I would just prefer that everybody gets along and everybody gets along with me as well. I mean, that would be a perfect world, right? But some Christians are shallow because they're always looking to take the easy way out. And that's not what we're called to do. Now, I'll say this. Pray first. And and the reason why is because reconciliation is at the heart of God's character. God loves reconciliation, Lord, you know, before you go to someone, pray, pray, maybe a few weeks, maybe a long time, fast, and say, Lord, I I really want this to work out. Because God loves reconciliation. I believe he will be a part of that. He'll be a part of that. Verse 16, the second step. Your brother or sister doesn't hear it. (laughs) How many have been there? (laughs) Get lost. You're crazy. I don't want to hear what you have to say. And then you can bring witnesses. You can bring, hopefully, somebody mature in the church, somebody who would be impartial, and you have the meeting with a witness. Again, this was in the Old Testament. It carries through to the New Testament. Now, can you stop at this point? Sure you can. You can. Let's say it doesn't go well, and the other person points out things about yourself, and you say, gee, I didn't see it that way. You may go home and say, maybe I'm not as right as I thought I was. Can you stop? Sure you can. Can you pray and see that maybe in a month's time that you guys can get together again and have the discussion after the Lord's worked on both of our hearts? Sure, you can do that. So that's always an option as well. Um, just a little side note on witness witnesses. There's something about the scrutiny of a third-party impartial witness. Um, it it kind of takes away an atmosphere of embellishment. So in other words, even... I, if, you have, if you're under my authority and you do uh, marital counseling, and sometimes a person will say, I think we need to separate them first. You know, I'll we'll talk to the husband and I'll talk to the wife. I always say, eventually, get them in the same room together. And the reason being is, I hear a few yeses. The reason being is because a person left to tell their story alone, without anybody looking at them or, or objecting, they're, they're more likely to embellish, to make the story you would think that they were the victim of the century. So it's seriously, so at some point, you've got to get them back into the room together. Uh, And there's less of a a possibility of, you know, really far out stories, but a lot of times it happens anyway. So in the Old Testament, before forensic evidence, witnesses were big. Um, They were big to give crucial testimony to a witness of a crime. Another set of eyes. I want to read to you Matthew 5, which goes, uh, this goes with this. And we have covered it, but I think it's really appropriate. Matthew 5, verse 23, Jesus says this, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, now understand in the Old Testament, carrying through to the New Testament, the temple was there, people would bring their gifts, and there were certain type of offerings that you would bring before God, and the altar was not like this, it was a different setup in the the Hebrew culture, And what you were doing if you were bringing your uh, gift to the altar was you were basically trying to have a relationship with the Lord, trying to make things better. So follow this. He says, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now, why is that? Some people, and I've heard this, some will say, I love God. I just can't stand people. (laughs) <laughs> You've heard that. Maybe some of you have said that. <laughs> but the truth is, you can't love God and, not, and hate people. You just can't. Because God loves people. He made us all in his image. We're fallen. We have to wear with each other at times. We have to deal with each other. But we can't go through life saying how much we love God, but we just don't get along with anybody. It just doesn't work out. It's not scriptural. So understand that. Keep going. He says in verse 25, agree with your adversary quickly. While you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hands you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there until you have paid the last penny. Again, you have to understand the culture. You could have been from the same town, and you would, there would be a magistrate, there would be a judge uh, somewhere in the area, and you might even be walking together with your adversary to that magistrate. And what he's saying is, you know what, try to work it out before you get there. Because if you're the one who's the plaintiff and you're bringing the complaint, you might find out when you get to the judge that you're more wrong than you think you are. So Jesus was very uh, concerned about us working out our issues and our differences with each other before we go further. So you see a reinforcement there. Again, you may not be, I may not be as right as I think I am. I I don't remember any time I've ever seen a situation with two parties that were arguing, Where one was 100% right and the other one was 100% wrong. We're sinners. So we are going to color things to our advantage. All right? Verse 17, the last step here is to tell it to the church. Now, this is interesting because in the early church, if you read the New Testament, it was told from the pulpit. So if there was an issue, names were named and everybody knew about it. You see what sin does? It starts small. it involves two people, then it starts to spread, it involves witnesses, and then before you know it, the whole body knows about it. What does God think when he sees that? When he sees Christians fighting like that? So tell it, tell it from the pulpit. Now, you don't see it happening that much. As a matter of fact, there was a, an article that I, I read, and it was about a church and a pastor and a woman. Sometimes the wolf is a man, sometimes the wolf is a woman. She went through the church sleeping with a bunch of men. Pastor finds out, woman doesn't repent says it from the pulpit, she's now suing him for slander because he's ruining her reputation. She didn't care when she was sleeping with all these men that her reputation was being ruined, but now there was, there's money involved. So this is, this is what's going on today. Um, I've been looking through it, there's actually a lot, when you look at the lawsuits, it unfortunately happens more often than you would think in the church. Again, what does the unsaved world see when they see this kind of stuff happening? I would suggest that if it was constantly, if if the church knew that this sin was going to be said from the pulpit, I guarantee there'd probably be less sin in the church. You know? Uh, Sometimes, as believers, we we need boundaries. We need discipline. And uh, if if not, we just do whatever and run roughshod. And that's not good either. Now, if you look at the scripture, Jesus says in Matthew 18, in the end, uh, verse 17, he says, if they refuse to hear even the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. So that's pretty amazing. You, you need to deal with the person now as if they never knew the Lord, as if they're not saved. Uh, so this is pretty hard. A lot of churches don't want to deal with this stuff, but it's in the scripture. So on very rare occasions, you may have to tell somebody, you, you don't fellowship here for a while. And I'm going to read 1 Corinthians and Paul's going to uh, explain that a little bit more. The question is why? Doesn't that sound mean? If a person is that rebellious and refuses discipline, then they forfeit the benefits that are afforded to them by assembling with the body of Christ. And quite frankly, if they don't accept uh, you know, correction and they don't accept it from the witnesses and then from their pastor or their leadership, then are, are we really their pastors and leadership anyway? So what's the difference? You know, It's a good way of looking at it. Now, I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 5, starting with verse four, just a few verses. And and I'm just maybe taking liberties with uh, the Apostle Paul's tone, but it sounds to me like he's a little ticked in this portion of scripture. Because I've never seen him say it the way he said it in here. In verse four he says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So here's a situation where a person is in sin. Uh, The church is dealing with that situation. And he's saying, tell him to leave the church for a while. Now, this is interesting. He says, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved. That's interesting. Some look at it as being mean spirited, but it's not. What he's trying to say is, let them be out of the fellowship of the brethren. That means no Facebook, (laughs) no email, none of that stuff, no phone calls, out for a time, for the destruction of the flesh. And that's what we try to do. We need to have our flesh destroyed so the spiritual part of us can be exemplified. You know, you wanna go hang with that crowd, you wanna do bad things, be, be away from your brothers and sisters, the teaching of God's word, the pastor, and let, let the devil deal with you for a while and see how it feels and compare both lives. And a lot, a lot will come back and say, you know what, I, I shouldn't have done that and, and it was a poor choice. Titus three ten and 11, just two verses, the apostle Paul says, reject the divisive man after the first and second admonition or warning knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Who did it to them? Don't blame me. Don't blame your brother and sister. Being self-condemned. It was brought on by yourself, by your own flesh. Right? You, we can also see this in Second uh, Thessalonians 3 and, and 2 Timothy. Uh, Warren Wiersbe, who I love, uh, a lot of the old-timers, they say that part of the bad state of the church is, is the fact that church discipline doesn't really happen anymore. Because we have a very enlightened society, and I say that facetiously. You know, we're above that. We don't say things in public. We're polite. So the old-timers say, you don't see church discipline happening, and uh, a lot of that is is a contributor to the state of the church. Um, and I will say this, that there are pastors that are just looking maybe for numbers, and they just want to bury their heads in the sand, And a pastor to me, and I don't care who you give this message to, is being gutless and a coward in this area if they know the situation and they receive rebels from another church. That is a problem. It's a big problem. It causes disunity among churches. So there you have it. But here's the truth. Rarely does it get to this point. The good news is that, you know... In the body of Christ, believers who are indwelled with the Holy Spirit realize things, and even if they don't get 100% of what they want, they try to work things out with each other. That's the way it should be. So I've seen more good fruit and mended fences than you know, uh, the, what we're seeing in this last step here. Um, another caveat to this is that, you know, listen, pastors are busy, leadership is busy, but, you know, you, you want to do good work. You want to do a good investigation. If this is something serious and could affect the church, the leadership needs to not do shoddy investigation. They need to really find out what the truth is and get to the truth. I've heard, well, you're both sinners and you both need to just make up. You're not getting to the heart of the issue. That's not gonna do anything. So that's important. Two, the bottom line is what does the world think when they see these type of things happening within the church? How how is it, what does the Lord think when the lifestyle of those in the church is just the same or worse than the unregenerate neighbor or the unregenerate coworker? That's not good either. I mean, we've been blessed lately. Um, We have a a Facebook page and uh, we had a a funeral for a brother and we had guest worship not too long ago, the barbecue. And even those from outside the church will post on our wall and say, I felt, you know, the family of the brother who, who passed. We had a whole contingent from our church at the wake and the funeral, and there was a lot of interaction with the family, and they said, your church is very warm, welcoming, you know, people that come in, and that's a good thing. Every church should be like that, so I'm, I'm blessed by that. The third point here is, before we move on, is let's just not move on. As I speak about this, as you read the scripture, who comes to your mind? Don't say it out loud. <laughs> Certainly don't say it if it's my name. <laughs> But the thing is, what we need to do is before we move on, think about that person who just popped into your mind like five times as I was reading the scripture, right? You see a lot of smiles. Uh, and really consider, we're going to take communion together. We're going to break bread. And it isn't just breaking bread in this church. You see, the church is the entire body of Christ. So there may be a believer that goes to a different church from you and, you know, maybe you either need to forgive or maybe you need to go to that person, but you need to get that bitterness out of your heart. Listen, I've been there. I'm not going to sit here and preach at you because I've dealt with these things as well. And it's, it's tough. It's not easy. So consider that. Verse 18. Jesus says, "Assuredly, I see to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my father in heaven. For where there are two or three that are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Jesus says this a few times. He said this after the revelation of the church. He's saying it about settling disputes in the church. So what do we know when something is repeated in God's word and God is repeating it? Something to pay attention to. What it tells us is that God is serious about our ability to assemble and solve problems of disunity. And sometimes those decisions are difficult. Now, it's important for believers to come together and assemble and seek God's counsel and have those solutions be ratified by God whether it's complete restoration and reconciliation or a time of disfellowship for a time that hopefully leads to reconciliation later on. We definitely want God to be a part of that process, don't we? As people of faith, we don't want to make disastrous decisions that are spiritual and can affect others. That is the last thing that I want. I'll tell you that right now. And I agonize sometimes. I say, Lord, all I want is the truth to come out. I want it just to be made right. If we can win a brother or sister to Christ, that is awesome. So that's very important. Verse 20, he says again, and I'll read it again, powerful. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst. Not on the fringes, not outside the window, not up in the balcony. He says, I am in the midst. That's an awesome, you know, we draw our life and sustenance from Jesus Christ. He is right in the center. Bam, when we start talking about the Lord and spiritual things or reading scripture, he is right there. He's right in the midst of us right now. We could be outside at the barbecue yesterday. I remember a bunch of brothers and sisters were talking about the Lord. He was there. It doesn't have to be within these walls. You see what I'm saying? So that's pretty neat. Verse 21. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, Lord, how often shall I how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him up to 7 times? And Jesus said, I do not say to you up to 7 times, or I, I do not say to you up to 7 times, but up to 70 times 7. Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants, and he goes into a parable as he often did to help the disciples understand what was going on here. Now, Why this order? Why this dispute thing and then um, this thing about really forgiveness? Because maybe what's happening is the dispute is settled and now forgiveness. And you know, even when you settle things and you work things out, there are times that you still have like a hang-up and maybe there's still a little bitterness, there's still a little smarting, but forgiveness is that clean catharsis, that clean washing away of those ill feelings towards another brother or sister. It's it's an interesting word, and I'm gonna cover a little bit more of the aspects later on. But let's be real. I've seen many who uh, have been in a lot of pain through something like this, and even if they have the discussion about it, it it causes them deep wounds. Um, I've seen some pretty bad divorces, where one party is hell-bent on destroying the relationship in the family. Uh, and then the offended party, uh, you know, even though that you're divorced, you're never divorced, especially if you have kids, because you still have to re- interact with that person. So divorce is, is, is hard in a lot of ways, uh, and it's, it, it sometimes lingers, uh, you know, events, uh, even when the child grows up and becomes an adult and gets married and such, you, you still will see that other party. So that's, divorce is a very hard issue uh, to deal with, and I've, I've seen it, and it's, it's rough. I'm not going to tell you that forgiveness is easy. You know, Listen, we don't do that from the pulpit. We don't just throw things and cram it down your throat and say, well, it's because the word says it. Now be quiet and deal with it. We need to sometimes look at this and, and work it out and ask for the Lord's help. Forgiveness is often a process. It doesn't always happen overnight. And the deeper the wound, the longer it takes to heal. It's true with the body and it's true with the heart and the psyche. And I'll say that the closer somebody is to you and they wound you, that can really open up that wound and it can take a long time to heal. You know, I've been through it. I've been through it, even as a pastor, a little transparency from the pulpit. And I cried out to the Lord, Lord, I'm not over this. And I should be. I was mad at myself. Why am I not over this? It took me a while. But you know what? When I was completely ready to let it go, I let it go completely, right? When I was completely ready to let it go, I let it go completely. And it was a spiritual washing. It's kind, of, it's kind of funny, you know, maybe I'm, I know I'm strange, but, you know, I would say the person's name like five times. Huh, I don't feel anything. That's awesome. So it was a spiritual washing. The Lord just took it away and, and I could have fellowship and I could see them again. And maybe all the issues didn't get to work to be worked out, but the Lord did a work. But sometimes it takes time. Go to somebody that you trust. Talk to them about it. You know, pray. L- let the Lord do, do a work in you. Luke 17, I want to jump to that. Jesus goes into a little bit more detail here. Luke seventeen three through four. Listen, there's times that we read just such encouraging portions of scripture. And then there's times that the scripture can be a bitter pill to swallow. But again, God doesn't promise he's going to make our lives completely easy all the time. He doesn't promise that he's not going to ask us to do something that's difficult, may stretch ourselves, you see? So, and that's where we are in this portion of scripture. So Luke 17:3, Jesus says, take heed to yourselves if your brother sins against you, if, it's a conditional statement in the Greek and the English, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. This is powerful because there's a repentance is inserted in here. Why? Because if a person is looking to manipulate you or control you, can you still forgive them? Absolutely. But if you condone sinful behavior, check this out. It hurts the sinner. You may think, oh, it causes me pain. But if you let somebody sin and continue to do that and just kind of ignore it and look the other way, you're hurting them. Because they're not getting to the point where they're seeing a reflection of what they're doing and, and going before God and say, you know, this is wrong. I got to stop doing this. So repentance is extremely, extremely important. Without repentance, we become self-deceived. We call ourselves Christians. We continue going. We don't repent. And God's like, you know, you kind of left them behind. So repentance is crucial, crucial. Now, is this hard to determine at times? Yeah. You notice Jesus says, if he says, I repent. If a person seems genuine, who are we to say that their heart isn't genuine? Let it go. You know, err on the side of love. Love covers a multitude of sins. Now, if that person is in a, in a constant state of dishonoring the Lord, maybe you're a new believer and they're a bad example and this keeps coming up, you may have to just part ways for a while because they're stumbling you to do something you shouldn't be doing. So there's a lot of, a lot of issues that, that, that come in with this. And I'm going to go back and forth. There are some sins that are uh, just person to person. Two sisters, you know, they're kind of, Arguing about something that had ten years ago and doesn't really affect the church, and they need to. Those two sisters need to work it out. Or you could have uh, two brothers that there's an issue, but the one is not a. Let's say he has a business. Is it just an easy an example, and he's kind of ripping off a bunch of people in the church, right? And he's <laughs> preying on people in the church. That's a problem, <laughs> and then the leadership of the church needs to know that because now it's it's going to start spreading through the church. Somebody should confront that person. To to get the process going. So I'm going to go back and forth, it seems, between kind of interpersonal and things that affect spreading in the church. Now, in Corinthians, if we think it's the guy, as we read in Corinthians, who was uh, sleeping with his father's wife, um, there was an issue with the offended father, but there was also an issue that the whole church knew about it, and it was spreading, and it was causing problems. So the apostle Paul had to get involved. So verse 21, here goes the parable. I love Jesus' parables. First, 12 I'll just start with 21 again. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Jesus said, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, I believe um, that, listen, the rabbis, we know that the rabbis taught, you can look at some of the rabbinical writings, that you can forgive three times and they felt that that was generous. So I guess Peter thought, well, I'm gonna hedge my, you know, maybe Jesus will be happy with seven. It's more than the rabbis, but I don't want to go any further than that. So Jesus, when he said 70 times seven, 490, uh, that must have stunned Peter. Because at that point, what do you do? You start to lose count. And that's the point. You know, we should never have a limit on the forgiveness in our hearts. That's hard as believers, isn't it? See, I mean, some, a lot of you, I know your stories. You've been through this stuff and it's difficult. But Jesus is saying, be gracious, love. Um, And sometimes that can be rough. Um, So he goes into this parable. Verse 23, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one who was brought to him, who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. Now, a talent, understand, is is really a unit of weight. It's a unit of, of could be a unit of monetary value, but it's it's like pounds. It's a unit of weight. Now, understand that whether it was a talent of gold or a talent of silver and adjust the market price at the time and inflation versus, you know, you can go throw all these variables in for our economy, you're going to have wild fluctuations. But what you will find is that it's a huge number, anywhere from $60 million to several billion dollars. Now, that's an insurmountable amount for this man to pay. Now, he was a servant. So he wasn't the upper class. He wasn't a wealthy man. There's no way this guy could pay it. And that's the point of the parable, that this money was not able to be paid. So since he couldn't, it couldn't be paid, punishment involved the whole family. He was going to be sold into slavery and his wife and his children, and possibly to different slave masters. You understand the culture at the time. That's pretty bad. And that would ensure that he's definitely not paying that figure back. So he could look forward to a life of servitude and maybe isolation from his family. Don't miss that this insurmountable debt is a picture of our sin. Don't miss that. And what does sin do? Number one, it is a burden too big to bear. If you think you're getting to heaven on your good look or your charms or your notoriety or your money or your good works, you can forget about it. The amount is too big to pay. It's a picture of your sin and my sin. The second thing about sin is it affects not only us but our loved ones. Notice that his loved ones were also sold into slavery. Number three is a picture of isolation for the rest of your life and for eternity. It's not a good thing. Eternal punishment. Now, there's no good reason that I can think of or you can think of why this master would have released this man of his debt, unless you understand that God is personified in the master, in the king. And the master's actions were a free, a picture of the free gift of salvation that his son paid that price on the cross for us. In the Greek, there's a phrase, it says it's moved with compassion. We know that Hebrew was a very emotional, um, you know, deep language. Sometimes the English can be a little sanitized when it's translated. The Greek also had these phrases. It's a long Greek word. I don't want to attempt to even try to say it. But in the Greek, moved with compassion literally meant that this master yearned from his bowels. So he was moved with compassion. Everything that he had inside of him was moved with compassion for this lowly servant. He could have just got rid of the servant and got another servant. Picked another one up from the slave market. But he he loved this servant. And that is a picture of what God did for us on the cross. He desires that all men will be saved. He loves the world. And the Bible says, when God loves the world, that, world is, that word world is always used in a sense, a negative sense of the sinful, rebellious world against God. So if you're here and you don't know the Lord, this is the way God feels about you. Your debt of sin, even at this age, if you're a young person, you've amounted so much debt that you cannot pay it. But God loves you so much that he sent his son into the world to die for your sin. It is a free gift of salvation. Understand that. Verse 28. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. And he would not but went and threw him into the prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done, all that had been done. So what we see here is there's a different form now. All right, so the one servant now finds a, a guy on his level, a fellow servant, and he says, hey, by the way, you owe me some money. You owe me some money. A uh, 100 denarii would amount to about a third of a year's pay. Right? Which, which could have been paid off. But what happened was he throws him into prison. Now, this guy just was forgiven all this debt, and he takes a guy with a piddly amount, a few hundred dollars, maybe a thousand or so, and for that he throws him into the prison, assuring that he can't pay that debt. So we kind of get a little insight on this first servant who was forgiven. So verse 31, when his fellow servants heard what had been done, they were very grieved, came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not have also had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly father will also do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. So the master finds out and he's furious. He's furious because you can't compare the two figures. One is eternity of, of working and never paying it off. And the other one is he stole my donkey. You know what I'm saying? So you just can't compare a grain of sand versus all the sand on all the beaches of the world. It's in. It's a huge chasm, an infinite chasm of worth. What does God think when he sees pettiness in the church? Stole my donkey. Ten years ago, you sold me a car and the transmission went. I'm really mad at you. I don't want to speak to you anymore. You haven't seen that stuff? right? <laughs> How serious is God about unforgiveness in the church? Very, very Lately, we've had a few believers come up, and they're new to our fellowship. What would they think if they saw that in this fellowship? They probably wouldn't stay. And some have come here from other churches, and I've heard some pretty, pretty good horror stories. You know, um, It's sad. What does the world see? What, is, what happens when that spills out over into the world, into court systems and lawsuits, and now the unsaved world sees it's Christians. They're weird, always fighting with each other. It's not good. It's not good at all. Now, let's look at this because what you could come to is an improper exegesis of this and say, does that mean that God forgives and takes back his forgiveness? Be careful with the parables. That is not at all what's being said here. To maybe understand this a little more, you can look at it this way. Someone who has an unforgiving heart maybe can't receive forgiveness themselves. They're so bitter, they're so closed that even though God offers it, they just can't receive it. It's a concept that's foreign to them because they have a closed heart. Two, the way we treat others reveals a lot about who we are inside. Right? Maybe this guy, um, you know, I don't want to read into it too much because you should never do that with the parables. Uh, but you see the way the first servant treated the second servant. Not a good thing. It revealed a lot about his heart. So it almost seems like he just wanted to get away with it from the king and then sneak around, slink around and find the other guy and get a few bucks from him. Um, Is it really worth today hanging on to what one of us may be hanging on to for 10 years, for 20 years, right? I want to encourage you too that some may say, gee, that's really hard. Listen, some of the best Bible scholars have difficulty with that parable. Sometimes I think that Jesus allows us to meditate on that and meditate on it and just see how serious he is about forgiveness. And if you're worried about it and you're going through a hard time, again, talk to somebody. But there is a difference between somebody who works through these things, who works through the forgiveness, who keeps seeking the Lord, who's really trying, and they're not there yet. God's not going to condemn you for that. Versus a person, I call them mousetrap Christians. You you, You take the spring and wind it all the way back And put a little trip wire on there, and mice actually like peanut butter more than they like cheese. Uh, And you're just waiting for somebody to hit that trip wire. That's what you do, you know. You met believers like that. They're just so uptight. They're wound just so tight, you know. And if that's you, this parable is definitely for you. But verse 45, he says to forgive. Now that word literally means, in the semantic range, it means either to send forth or to yield up. I submit to you that unforgiveness is a prison. It's not being yielded up, it's not being given up, it's a prison. Two people are in prison. Number one, I'll start with the easy one first, the person you're not forgiving. Maybe you hear about them falling into some difficulty and you rejoice, oh they're finally gonna get theirs. You're holding that person in a prison. I'm gonna make myself available and if they look my way, I'm gonna purposely turn away. You know, I'll show them. I won't even smile at them. The other person who's in the prison is you. You put yourself behind bars because it it, it really, it is, it's a bitterness. You build a wall, you you put locks on it, you put the high wall and the moat and no one's going to hurt me again. You put yourself in a prison. It's such a, a, a wonderful feeling when we release that and give it over to the Lord. The only one who wants you in prison is Satan, right? That's right. So I would say this too. This is a powerful portion of scripture. Um, And I would ask you today, if this is you, and you're working through it, that today might be the day. Today might be the day to really be serious about it. You keep shoving it to the back of your mind. Keep pushing it back. Let it come out. Deal with it. Bring it towards the Lord. Ask him to help you through this. Uh, This is where we are in the scripture. Now let's read the goal. Because the goal is the best part of this. What is God's heart on this? What does he want to see? I'm going to read to you 2 Corinthians, and this is where we're going to leave it. 2 Corinthians 2, starting with verse 5. This is the situation I spoke to you briefly about before, about the Corinthian church. We actually, a few years ago, went through all of First and Second Corinthians. The apostle Paul says in verse 5, but if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. Don't be too severe. The punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. That's what we don't want. That's what Satan wants, a person to be totally destroyed. Listen, there's two types of of ways that churches can do it wrong. Number one, just walking around with blinders, ignoring all the problems and the factions that are happening in the church. The other problem that churches do is they're good with church discipline, but they're not very good with reconciliation and restoring the person. That's a problem. So he doesn't want him to be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. Remember, the discipline process equals love. Because that person, once they repent and are restored and loved, and we forgot, forgive and forget, there's a learning experience. There's a character building in that. We see that in our kids, don't we? What if we never disciplined our kids? And some parents don't. I knew uh, parents that would, not only would they not discipline their kids, they would not say the word "no" because the child didn't like it. I'll tell you what. At 12 years old, he's going to be getting a lot of visits from the police department, because he's just he do whatever he wants. That's not love. Whether your kids tell you or not or your teens, they're looking for boundaries. They're looking for you when they step out of line for you to notice them. That's why they, the negative attention that some kids do, they want to be noticed. If we ignore them and we don't discipline them, then what happens is they feel like they're not loved inside. Very interesting how the mind works. For to this end I wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are are obedient in all things. Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. So we see this confront, rebuke, if necessary, discipline, if necessary, maybe repentance is just going to happen, which is going to be a great thing. We can look at forgiveness, reconciliation, restoration, and trust. Now, I don't ever want to put you from the pulpit in a position where you're going to hurt yourself and, and it's not something that God asked for. Trust is very interesting. That's the last step in the process. If you watch my kid on Saturday... You know, he's 11, he's going through puberty, and he gets on your nerves, which he probably would do at some point if you were watching him, and you disciplined him and you broke his arm. Could I forgive you? Absolutely. Do you think you'll be watching him next Saturday? Absolutely not. <laughs> right? <laughs> we can be restored, we can rejoice, we can pat each other on the back and it's okay. However, you might not be watching him for a while because trust is something that takes a while to build that's the the, you know the bomb has been dropped on the edifice the bricks are everywhere trust is when the bricks start getting put together and you start you know so understand i don't want you ever to put did i say use (laughs) i don't want you ever to put yourself in a in a position that you shouldn't be put in so i grew up in brooklyn so i'm gonna start to come out every once in a while that's the last domino to fall so to speak so let me just leave you with this this last point If you don't know the Lord, every Sunday somebody comes in here, came in off the street, don't know anybody, doesn't know the Lord, pretty church, a lot of cars, something's happening there. When you understand this parable, understand that God loves you and God has forgiven you and all that debt has been wiped away, but he's put his hand out. You've got to take his hand. He's given you free will and he's not going to supersede your free will and force you to be saved. That is your choice. So don't miss that. You've offended God. I've offended God with my sin. He wants to forgive us. He has forgiven us. But the only way to that forgiveness is through the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, when he hung on that cross, took your sins, took my sins, buried it, destroyed it for all eternity. But you have to believe that he did that for you. You have to look, as Jesus says, as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, and those who looked... They would be cured of the snake bites. You have to look. You have to believe. You say, yes, I believe that he did that for me. Yes, I want to lay hold of that. Yes, I want to follow him as my Lord and Savior. So don't miss that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we